Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello there, welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you for being here as ever. Thank you for putting me in your ears. We have got a weekend game against West Brom, one of the glamour fixtures of the season that at the Hawthorns this weekend, Arsenal against a big, tall, physically imposing Tony Pulis side, just the kind of thing that we relish. So we're going to look forward to that and preview that as much as we possibly can between now and the end of the show. As well as that, we'll be talking to Paolo Bandini as we try and do a podcast which isn't 99% about the future of Arsene Wenger. I know it's a little bit difficult given the uh, focus on the manager at this moment in time, but we're going to do our best. Well, you know, it'll probably come up somewhere along the way, but I'm going to try and talk to Paolo more about a man who has been tipped as one of the potential replacements for Arsene Wenger when he does leave the club in 2027. Uh, So we'll ask ask Paolo uh, about that as well. Uh, What else? I don't really know. It's time to start making stuff up as we go along. Well, if you're here on Friday the 17th of March, I'm sure many of you around the world... Seeing the green everywhere, we'll understand what day it is. The 17th of March. That's right. It is. It's Archer's birthday. The Arsblog German Shepherd. It's his birthday today. He's five. Five years of age. Can't believe it. I don't know where those five years have gone. We got him as a puppy in June. Fuck. 2012. Jesus Christ. Where does the time go? His first experience of football was watching Germany win a game in the European Championships. I thought it was right and proper to to show him the team of his his ancestors, his forefathers. So after we brought him home in the car from a place called Ballymore Eustace, down the country, we brought him home. He was sick about three times in the backseat of the car, his little puppy belly not able to cope with the motion and the movement. We sat him down in front of the TV He had a look at the Germans and then decided to uh, chase the cats all around the place. Now all the cats are dead and Archer is five. I'm going to celebrate that by playing a little clip from one night when I was recording the podcast and clearly somebody downstairs was coming a, a little bit too close to the house and Archer did not like it. What are you barking at? Who is it? Who? I don't know who that is. Who is it, Archer? Right. Tell them to go away. Good boy. So, happy birthday, Archer Mallory Mangan. Happy birthday to you, pal. He's my my big mate, and I love him. So there. I'm not afraid to express love for a dog. 
on my own podcast. What are you on about? Nothing wrong with that. So what else has been going on? Not a huge amount, it has to be said, because, well, our last game was against Lincoln. And with all due respect to Lincoln, it's not really one of those results that you can you can dine out on. It's not one of those that you can milk for content all week long. You know, 17 different angles of an amazing goal that you can't do it. So it's been pretty quiet, and that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. You know, we've got an interlull coming up this weekend after... The West Brom game, two weeks without a game, and then we've got Manchester City at home. First game of two against Manchester City coming up in April because uh, we've drawn Man City in the FA Cup. We uh, talked about that with James on on the uh, Arscast Extra on Monday before the draw had been made. And, you know, I, I think probably it's it's the best draw for us at this moment in time. You know, maybe in a few weeks' time we'll have found some rhythm and form and everything else, but, you know, the idea of playing against one of those other two, given the way we're a bit low on confidence, etc., at the moment, uh, I wouldn't really have fancied it, which isn't to say I feel especially confident about beating Manchester City either. I just think it would be, you know, a little easier, a little bit better for us uh, than Spurs or Chelsea uh, at this moment in time. So that's something we've got to look forward to at the end of April. The trip to Wembley, two games away from a trophy. That's where we are this season. You know, when it comes right down to it, of course, things haven't gone as well as we would like. But, you know, we're still just two games away from lifting some silverware, which uh, people like. It's kind of the whole point of it, isn't it? think so. Anyway, Arsene Wenger had his press conference yesterday and uh, it was really quite dull, really dull. They did try and ask him about protests and his future and all that kind of stuff. And he said, no, I'm just not going to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that anymore, which, you know, you can understand because it's every single press conference and it's the same questions and you're not getting any fresh answers, are you? I mean, if you're going to give him, if you're going to get a fresh answer, or if you think you're going to get something new, then by all means, but you know, right now it seems a bit pointless, but there was a particularly good moment in the press conference yesterday when one of the journalists, I don't know uh, who it was exactly, but she asked if there was a bonus system in place for finishing in the top four. And Arsene Wenger didn't want to give any details of that, but said, yes, you know, uh, we keep things in-house, but of course there are bonuses for achievements. And (laughs) the follow-up question, uh, I'm just going to play it for you because it it really is fantastic. This is what happened next. Do those bonuses get removed if it doesn't happen? Yeah, when you don't, uh, when you pay bonuses for achievement, it means if you don't achieve, you don't get the bonuses. Austin, how important is it to keep pace with the top four? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's uh, it's brilliant. You know, the, the concept of bonuses is not necessarily the most difficult one to grasp. Like, it's it's quite black and white. If you do the thing that's in the contract that says you will get a bonus, if you do it, if you do that, you get the bonus. And if, if you don't do that, then you don't get the bonus because you haven't earned the bonus. That's why it's called a bonus. I have to say, I love the, uh, the silence that followed his answer. Yeah, when you don't, uh, when you pay bonuses for achievement, it means if you don't achieve, you don't get the bonuses. And the whole thing was made just better by the fact that the next thing anybody could think of was to ask him, how important is it to keep pace with the top four? Hmm, 
Let me have a think about that. How important is it to keep pace with the top four? Well, you know, ultimately, what is the point? Life is basically meaningless. It's just a journey from A to death, and you try and make it as comfortable as you possibly can. Within two or three generations, none of us will even be remembered by our own families, let alone the world. We'll just be specks of dust disintegrated into the ground or ashes somewhere. So you're asking me, is it important that we keep pace with the top four? Get a grip, man. Climate change. That's something we need to be concerned about, not whether or not we can keep pace with the top four. And a world tour by Phil Collins. That's what's happening this summer. Phil Collins is touring the world, playing music so loud that people might hear it. And you're asking me about Premier League football and final league positions? Get a grip. Which would have been a very good answer. Of course, but, you know, he had to say, yes, it is, it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's quite important, you know, because that's, that's what we're here for, you know, play football and finish as high up the league as we can, you know, so it's, it's good to keep pace with the, the leading clubs. Fun times and press conferences, folks. What a world we live in. You know how to make a podcast more sinister? You can do it with just the push of one button. Well, I can anyway. Listen. Now you're looking around nervously to see who's after you in some kind of movie backdrop. Well, nobody. I was just pushing pushing buttons. Anyway, I think we should get on with the show. And to talk a bit about the uh, Champions League, to talk a bit about uh, a man who could one day replace Arsene Wenger and much more. I'm delighted to uh, welcome back to the show Paolo Bandini. Hello there. Hey, Andrew. How are you? I'm well, thanks. And how are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. good. Good, surviving this uh, this wonderful up and down season we're having. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say pretty, pretty good, but I don't think too much about how Arsenal are doing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, ignorance is bliss and all that, I guess. You know, let's uh, bury our heads in the sand. Um, I, w- I want to start by talking a little bit about the the Champions League and the fact that Leicester City are the only club, uh, the only English club to have made it through to the to the quarterfinals. Manchester City went out against uh, Monaco in midweek, and obviously Arsenal had their traumatic experience uh, against Bayern. Munich. Arsene Wenger was asked about it at his press conference on Thursday. What were the reasons did he think behind uh, the English club's failure to progress? And and he had this to say. I'm just going to play a little clip here. There are some obvious reasons, but I don't think that uh, people are really interested in it. And uh, that's why I prefer not to talk about it. Now, at that point... Sitting in the press conference, you know, I, w- I was watching it, waiting for somebody to go. Please, I'm a- I'm interested in that. I would like to. I would like to know what your theory is on this. To tell me, you know, and nobody did, um, w- w- which is bizarre, you know, uh, because when when somebody says that, it's like I know a secret, but I'm not going to tell you. You know, it's a, it's a bit like that. But what what would you say? Um, obviously, we're just going to speculate here. But but what do you think might he might have in mind? Well, I think Arsene's spoken before, hasn't he? Not particularly recently, but about the the winter break and the lack thereof. Uh, I think that's certainly something that uh, it's something that comes up when I've spoken. I suppose it's slightly odd, odd people to ask, but I've had this conversation with people in Italy before, people who aren't in the Premier League, people who are sort of observing from afar in the context of why maybe the uh, English national team doesn't perform as well at international tournaments, and uh, and and why maybe the Premier League clubs don't live up to the amount of money they're spending. And, and a thing that I've heard quite often is the idea of it's not just about the winter break but a, a quite common um, theme has been well it seems to us like these players are exhausted at the end of a season um, and I think that 
the winter break is one part of that. I think the number of cup games that English clubs play is also part of that. I think when you look at, uh, I know clubs generally don't put out their stronger sides in them, but when you look at the League Cup and the extra drain that puts on Premier League teams, other places in Europe aren't dealing with that. I mean, the Coppa Italia and Italy, they're already playing fewer rounds than they do than they do in the FA, than English clubs will do if they're successful in the FA Cup. Um, and there's no secondary domestic cup competition for Italian teams to worry about. So I think there's things like that. Um, I think you also see now in Italy how the uh, scheduling of, of um, the, the competition has been sort of geared to make uh, to increase ch- uh, teams' chances of going fast. So they play uh, very often games on, on Fridays. If you're going to be playing in the Champions League, you'll play your, your league game on a Friday, so you've got more time to get ready for it. Mm. Now, Italy's not the best example in this case because there's only one Italian team in the quarterfinals as well. But um, but I think relative to wage bills, turnover, uh, that is less sort of uh, surprising than it should be for the Premier League. The Premier League should be expecting as the richest league in Europe to have more than one team in the quarterfinals. And there is an extent to which I do think we can say, and I suspect that this is sort of what Wenger was was nudging at, but as you say, it would have been interesting to hear from him. Um, I I think that the English uh, setup doesn't necessarily help its teams as much as some others do. So you're talking, you're talking about scheduling of games, you're talking about, you know, giving... I think scheduling, I think winter break, I think yeah. the League Cup, I think all of these things all add into a general climate in which uh, at this point of the season, the important point of the season, English clubs are more likely to just be a little bit physically behind where some of the other uh, teams, uh, uh, nations in Europe are. I mean, certainly you look at uh, Germany and it's already, it's a smaller top division, so you're playing fewer games. The winter break is huge. You've got a long time to to rest and recover during that period. I think that's that's not insignificant. I think it, it matters. Yeah. Is there also something to be said perhaps for the idea that just because English clubs are rich and can spend more money than anybody else in, in terms of transfers and in terms of uh, wages, that with that comes an expectation, but there isn't necessarily, the, the, the cause and correlation is not the same. How much you spend isn't always a guarantee of, of how good your football team is going to become or how good your team will be. No, I mean, there's definitely something to that. And there's no question at all that English clubs now play a pre- uh, pay a premium. So the difference in, in quality that you get is is not as marked as you might think from the, the prices because everyone knows that a Premier League club can pay more. I think that players accept lower wages to play somewhere like Juventus than they would to play in, in a mid-table team in, in the Premier League. So that's obviously, you're obviously not getting the same value for money, I think, in the Premier League as you would in other places. Having said that, um, these are problems that any other uh of these clubs competing in in the latter stage of the Champions League would want to have. I, I think that there's no sort of uh, lack of acknowledgement in places outside of the biggest teams, outside of Barcelona, Real Madrid, um, Bayern Munich. I don't even know if I can if I can quite put Juventus in this category because it's only really at the moment when they've got the stadium going and they've done a good job with their mm. commercial investments. Juventus are still really only just pushing to be in that sort of top eight category of 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 wealth it, it, just keeping up with the premier league is in terms of turnover is, is really substantially challenging because the tv money is so much bigger and i think that uh, i think that there's there's no lack of awareness when you go and talk to different people in these countries that in the end if the premier league clubs want certain players they're going to get them because again unless you're barcelona real madrid Bayern munich you can really pull that cachet 
players, like most people in most walks of life, are going to go where they can get paid the best. Mm. So, yes, uh, it's true that the Premier League clubs don't always get the value for money. It's true that Premier League clubs don't necessarily have the best players just because they have the most money. But they certainly have a structural advantage, which other clubs, which other clubs in Europe are envious of. Is there something as well to be said for the fact that because of the money that's on offer, because it's easier to attract players? Uh, it's also seen, I would suggest, an increase in competitiveness across the Premier League, that the gap between the, you know, we used to have a top two, and now mm. it, then it was a top four, and then a top six, it could be almost a top seven, who knows, you know, mm. that the the games themselves are perhaps a bit more competitive. It takes maybe over the course of a season more to win games than it does in in other leagues um mm. you know it's difficult to look beyond uh, spain maybe germany as well how how rampant bayern munich are how generally speaking it's barcelona and real madrid who win the title there and i know there are teams like atletico and sevilla who are who push hard but generally speaking you know they're not quite as competitive and going back to that old chestnut being not quite as physical perhaps then tying into mm. what wenger is talking about in terms of a break yeah, I think there's, there's something in that. There's certainly something in um, in the competitiveness right now. I think that you have to be slightly careful with that going back over the years because it's not like the English Premier League has been consistently this competitive. But certainly right now, it's a level of competition which is way more intense than any of the other top leagues in Europe. I think most of the top leagues this year are looking particularly skewed apart. Having said that, you know you could look at, um, at Paris Saint-Germain, I think, as a good example of a team who have had things so easy domestically that that's not necessarily beneficial to them either. I think yeah. that last season, for instance, when they were sort of strolling to another league title and you thought like, in the last stage of the Champions League, well, that means all their folks can be on the Champions League. Yeah, but the, the flip side of that was that they had no... Um, they had no tension in the side. They had no, um, I don't know, that that sort of sense of playing competitive games from week to week had been lost. And so when they needed to up their game, they couldn't. Yeah. Um, so I think that I think that's that's you know definitely a double-edged sword. I think there's something without question in the fact that Premier League games are played at a higher tempo, a higher level of intensity. I think that's not. Um, it's a cliche, but it's not a false one. I think that, again, most places you go in Europe, if you talk to them about the Premier League, that's something they'll say. They'll say it's a very physical league. It's a very aggressive league. Maybe they don't prize technique as much as we do over here or tactics as much as we do over there. But that's certainly a characteristic of the Premier League. Um, and I do think that the Champions League, when you really get into it, what you see with the Champions League is how much it's a tournament about timing. It is very much about playing your best games at this time of year. because. Yeah. You only have to get through the group stage. Real Madrid is showing it now because they didn't even win their group. And they're probably, I don't know, I haven't got the odds in front of me, but I'd be surprised they're not either the favourite or second favourite to win the whole competition at this point because they got through their group, they didn't win it, and then they're able to to, to raise their game at this point in the year when they need to. And I think that issue of, of timing is important and probably does work against Premier League teams because for all the reasons we've said, which include that physicality, but also the, the break and the extra cup games, they're just a bit more tired at this time of year. Yeah, and you know, we've spoken before about tactics and that kind of thing, but when you see a manager as invested in tactics and preparation and analysis, you know, the detail that someone like Pep Guardiola goes into, mm. you know, you can't necessarily throw that out as a reason because English clubs aren't necessarily as sophisticated tactically as, as their European opposition, but it does, it is very difficult to look at the record, how many quarterfinals uh, have been reached by English clubs over the last number of years, and you know it, it is a really poor record, isn't it? Yeah, the English clubs are underperforming in Europe right now. There's 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 no question about that at all. Um, I think you're spot on about the managers. You're talking about the managers, the caliber of manager at the top clubs in in England now. You shouldn't be having to question that about whether or not these are 
people who are capable of coming up with different systems. Again, Pep Guardiola's reputation seems to be on the slot at the moment in a slightly, in my opinion, overblown way. But yeah, he's, he's not someone who's naive about what it takes to do well in this competition. So we're not talking about there being some drastic gulf in in terms of the ideas, but it, the implementation certainly is, has not been as effective as it should be. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, that's something that they're going to have to deal with and uh, and try and improve next season. As yet, we don't know which teams are, are going to be in the Champions League. There's a hell of a there's a hell of a scrap for it. Arsenal are, are four points off, five points off, I think, the Champions League spots, but do have uh, two games in hand. And, and what happens between now and the end of the season will probably have a, a significant impact on, on who's going to be in charge next season. Now, over the last few weeks, we've talked a lot of talking, spoken a lot. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We've spoken a lot about uh, Arsene Wenger on the podcast and his future. And uh, he was quite quick at his press conference yesterday to shut that down. You know, he was asked about protests. He was asked about, you know, how he felt about them. And he said, look, I just I just don't want to talk about that anymore. And you can understand that. Uh, so we're not going to do uh, we're not going to do that either. But one of the names that has been uh, posited as a possible replacement uh, for Arsene Wenger, uh, if that comes uh, to pass this summer, is is the Juventus manager, Max Allegri. And, and obviously he, I think, is the he is the go-to guy for a lot of people. They've heard his name and they've, you know, he is someone different. He's someone younger. He's someone fresh, someone new. Um, he's had an interesting uh, career, both as a player and, and a manager. As a player, he was somebody who never really made the, the top of the game, was he? No, and I, I don't know. I don't know if people uh, would worry about that in a, in a manager. I think there's been so many, including Wenger himself, who didn't necessarily yeah. push to the very top. Well, that, of the that's game. kind of where I was going with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's it's not. It's you know, he he had a, a perfectly um, serviceable career. He was played for a whole bunch of teams. I couldn't even tell you most of them. Um, uh, Livorno, Cagliari was probably one of his his more notable stops. But yeah, you know, he he played. Uh, a solid journeyman professional career and got a taste of lots of different things and uh, he's, he's made himself as a manager as a, you know, the old-fashioned way, I guess, starting from from the bottom up and, and, and earning everything that he got. Um, I think he's a, a very competent manager and I think uh, um, I can understand why people are interested in him. I think it's easy to look and say, oh, well, he inherited a team that was winning at Juventus and he's kept on winning, but there's lots of things that he's done to improve that side. And I think even before he got to Juventus, there was a lot about his uh, his management that was that was impressive. What exactly uh, would, would differentiate him from Arsene Wenger in terms of his approach? Because you know what? The way uh, Arsene Wenger operates, he's, he likes to play attacking football. He likes his players to have freedom of expression. He's not necessarily a a man who will be uh, expressing his instructions. Like if if they do this, you do that. If they do this, you know, he's not that kind of a guy. A, a more of an improviser, as as Philippe O'Claire would would say. He's a he's a jazzer. You know, he, he sort of uh, makes it up as he goes along to a certain extent. Uh, in yeah. terms of the what he gives his players, in, in the hope that they then flourish because of that um mm. and i think that you know to a large extent at, at this point of, of of football is is quite unique so what i mean what way does allegri uh, work with his players is he quite tactically rigid is he is he a bit more does he have a bit of that freedom that arsene Wenger has he's a pragmatist and he certainly isn't sort of um you know he isn't someone who will say this is how we're going to play and, and we're sticking with this forever but i don't think you could call him a, a jazzer either i think he's He's um, he's he's very much someone who um, 
has evolved, I think, even in, in the three years he's been at Juventus. When he first showed up, he essentially was essentially doing exactly what I suppose people would want to accuse him of, which is showing up and just trying to take a team that was going to keep it winning. He kept initially the 3-5-2 that Conte was using, but at a certain point he's like, all right, well, this is this is okay, but it's not really taking us where we need to go. And they were having a, um, a, an extremely difficult time in the Champions League in particular, and he shifted to a, a, a back four, a 4-3-1-2. Quite a brave decision to do it in what was essentially the, the, the key group game against Olympiacos, where if they had lost, it would have all... Um, they would have been out of the competition in effect and that became a huge turning point for them in in, the, in that season which they ended up going all the way to the final of the Champions League they won that game against Olympiacos it was a little bit hairy they were 2-1 down and came back to win 3-2 but um, but it, that change sort of was the, the, the critical change and to a degree it was just a sort of looking at what he had in the in the team and going, okay, well, we're not getting the best right now out of Carlos Tevez. We're not getting the best right now out of um, Alvaro Morata. How can we use these players in a system that, that suits them a little bit better and, um, and coming up with something? And he's done that sort of consistently through the three years he's been there because... Uh, at times since then he has gone back to a back three and at times that's been the sort of the big strength of this Juventus team is the 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 BBC defence of Bonucci and Barzagli and Chiellini now Barzagli's a little bit older this season Bonucci's had some problems which kept out the team in the season and suddenly they're back using a back four again and they now have, have come up with a new formation again a sort of 4-2-3-1 because it allowed him to get the players that he wasn't getting in the team together all into it at the same time which was Marilyn Pjanic Gonzalo Higuain uh, Juan Cuadrado, Mario Mandzukic and Paolo Dybala those are sort of your five players who look like the stars of this team and he was at first he was sort of trying to use them in different ways not all at the same time and he finally said okay well what's a system that can get all them on the pitch at the same time and and he did it so I think that what's what's admirable about Allegri is that even within just the three years he's been at Juventus not even three years he's been at Juventus you've seen several different and markedly different systems. You know, these aren't like subtle changes. I think that shift from a 3-5-2 to a 4-3-1-2, it's a completely different way of playing football. The, 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 that initial Conte system was quite reactive, actually, whereas the um, what, what he came up with with the diamond field was a much more propositive way of playing the game. Um, and and to keep making those changes and keep coming up with things. Now, it's, it's easy enough to win domestically if you're Juventus in Italy right now. I think that's something that doesn't necessarily shock people, but... I think that uh, when you see the results in Europe particularly, uh, Juventus weren't cracking the latter stages of the Champions League under Antonio Conte. They were just not even getting out the group stage uh, at times. Whereas under Allegri, they have been to the final, then last year the quarterfinal, and again, uh, uh, that's a lie, the last 16 last year, but they had that incredible two-legged tie against Bayern Munich when Mm. they very nearly uh, pulled off a, a huge upset coming back you know, away at the Allianz Arena. They're through to the quarterfinal again this time. He's doing what Conte didn't with this team, and I think that's almost the way you have to judge him most strongly at Juventus because, sure, they're expected to win domestically, but he's made them more competitive in the, in the continental competitions as well. Mm. It's very interesting, isn't it, when you think about the the question marks over so many of the Arsenal players, like where exactly is their best position? How do you fit them into the team? Mm-hmm. How do you uh, achieve a formation or a system that works uh, to get the best out of your your best players? Um, and very interesting as well that he can, he can um, I guess, get across what he needs to in terms of what he expects from the players mm-hmm. uh, when he makes these tacti- tactical shifts, when he changes formation. It, are, are, I mean, are there weaknesses? Obviously, there are, there are some weaknesses. So, I mean, if we've talked a mm-hmm. lot about his positives, I mean, how would he fit, for example, into this current Arsenal setup, you know, yeah. where there are reservations about 
uh, I suppose how much work Arsene Wenger does or how much um, how many roles he fulfills within the club he's not going to come in and be a general manager of Arsenal is he he's mm-hmm. he's he's a head coach rather than a guy who's going to come in and take over the the nuts and bolts so to be honest with you I think almost my biggest concern with Allegri is um is uh, it's not only that he doesn't have that experience he absolutely doesn't he's not he's not a manager who has been uh in charge of his own transfer policies he's always worked under sporting director I mean at Milan he was there in a period of absolute I mean, I say a period as if this isn't all the time at Milan in the last sort of <laughs> decade, but a period of just nonsense transfer policy where players were coming and going with zero coherence whatsoever. And you know, I, I still say I think almost his most impressive season of all was his last full season at Milan because in that summer they sold uh, Ibrahimovic uh, and Thiago Silva and Nesta retired and Clarence Seedorf went and a whole host of other big players went and he still managed to get them into into third so he's never had control over transfer policy events it's much more of a sort of uh you know a shared relationship with Beppe Marotta the, the the general manager where they might talk about ideas like okay I'm interested in another striker or I'm interested in uh, you know we need someone to uh, fill this creative void in midfield and he, I'm sure he's consulted on names as well but again mm. he's not taking the lead on uh, on 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 these transfers, my concern with him uh, it's not just that he doesn't have that experience because he doesn't. Um, and I think if you manage that situation well, you can bring in a sporting director. I know there's been this rumor going around that Arsenal are looking for one, which lends itself to the idea that you might be looking at this sort of manager. Um, my concern with Allegri is if there's one real knock on him is that I think he definitely has he definitely has an ego. He definitely has a uh, a reasonably high opinion of himself which is not a bad thing in lots and lots of ways I think it's often a characteristic of people who are successful in high level sport but my worry would be that he would think he could do that job and someone would let him <laughs> I think that's almost the thing that would bother me most is that he would be able to talk someone to letting him do something that I don't know that he's I don't know that he's competent to do um, I think I would definitely at any club be feeling more com- more confident about Allegri and his ability to do good things for me if uh I was bringing him in just to be a coach because that's the thing which he's shown he can do and he can be very good at. I mean, do you think that's something that he might want to do? I mean, uh, you know, it strikes me that a lot of managers these days or coaches these days do not want to to have to deal with the things that Arsene Wenger um, troubles himself with, or not troubles himself with because, you know, he does it because he has to do it because there's nobody else there to do it. You know, really since David Dean left, and I know Ivan Gazidis has come in, he's got Dick Law as well to do mm-hmm. bits and pieces, but, you know, would he want to do all that work? Or, or would I, it be a case of you know if he could if he could have that control, he might be able to put in place whatever plans he wants himself. I, I don't know. I, yeah, I, you know, I, I have no, um, you know, I, I, I've interviewed Allegri before. I've spoken to him. I have no, I've never had that conversation with him where he said something to me, or I've never heard elsewhere that that's something he's actively seeking. It's just a, it's just a thought that I had because I know that he is someone who, uh, you know, and not undeservedly, but is is not. Uh, not lacking in self-belief. He's someone who is not generally lacking in, in confidence own opinion. I think you could see that mm. very vividly this season in the in what happened with Leonardo Bonucci, who is probably, arguably, Juventus' greatest asset. I mean, he's, he's, in my opinion, the best centre-back in the world. And uh, when they had an argument on the pitch, Bonucci was sent to the stands for the next game against Porto. A big game, by the way, against Porto away in the Champions League. And uh, this conversation the way it went down with the club was that Allegri basically said listen you're going to let me make my decision here or I'm going to go uh, so he's not he's not afraid of of 
recognizing his own importance and saying I am the most sort of important person in the situation, whether or not he's got an active interest in transfer policy. You know, that's that's purely speculation on my part. I'm not I'm not saying that that's something he he would necessarily want. Um, I think uh, it's perfectly reasonable to look at what's happened at Juventus and the good relationship he's had with directors there and say, well, maybe he understands quite what can be achieved when you have a good symbiotic relationship with a sporting director. Well, look, you know, I mean, managers, I guess, have to have some uh, ego and authority and not be afraid to uh, to use that authority. And uh, um, yeah, I think the best of them have had that down the years. But, you know, going back to something that you mentioned um, just there about sporting directors and the, the stories that Arsenal are in the market, they're looking for somebody because maybe Dick Law is ready to step away from the reins and maybe there's a, you know, they're trying to future-proof the club for uh, an appointment like this whenever that might happen. We don't yet know, obviously, when, when that might happen. But let's say, for example, that Arsenal win the cup and finish in the top four and Arsene Wenger decides that's okay uh, I'm going to stay now because that's a, I've got a trophy. I've you know finished top four. We've got Champions League football again. Uh, I'm going to stay for another two years. Um, how important would it be in those circumstances for Arsenal to 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 use those two years to try and put in place those structures that they need? Because the, you know having a sporting director or a director of football or uh, you know somebody in charge of transfers you know to have these football people in place for the next coach whenever whenever it might be as i keep saying and mm-hmm. it, it really is crucial for the future of, of the football club and and do you feel that if wenger did stay for example he would be willing to work alongside that kind of person who fulfills that kind of role because he never has before yeah I, I find that hard to see and this is i mean this is probably the most delicate part of of what comes next i think whether it's this year or or further down the line because you know we talk we talked about allegri specifically but i actually don't think there's many managers anywhere in in europe right now who are accustomed to having the sort of control that that the wenger has i think it's sort of an old model that doesn't doesn't exist in many places anymore. I think it's the expectation across most of Europe now that you have someone who deals with transfers and that allows the the manager, even the word manager, I think, is is sort of gradually shifting out towards the word, which, well, the word they've always used in Italy because it's always been the model, but, uh, you know, the idea of a trainer, a coach, like someone who specifically is there to coach players. Mm. And so I do think that it's, it's almost certainly going to be the case that when Wenger goes, that's something Arsenal are going to need. Um, I find it hard to see how that could happen while he's still there because who's going to say to him, we're going to strip back your powers right now. We're going to strip back your authority within the club. It would have to be a situation in which there was almost an agreed exit timetable and, and you're saying, okay, Arsene, we've, we think you're going to need to go at, after this year or after the year after. And uh, during that time, we specifically want you to, to, to train this guy. But even that seems like a slightly bizarre approach because who are you going to be getting in? Someone who doesn't have that experience and authority? Are you going to have someone who's willing to sit there quietly and mm. and and, al- and allow themselves to sort of just be in the background for a while? I find it hard to imagine a scenario in which that can happen. And I think it's something that, um, unfortunately, speaks to the, the situation that Arsenal have got themselves into. Um, so leaving aside everyone's feelings uh, for the immediate urgency of whether or not Wenger is doing a good enough job with the team. I think that just objectively you have to say that 
the club has got a bit of a power vacuum at the top now. There's a there's a lack of of anyone stepping forward and sort of establishing themselves as as leadership in this team other than Wenger. And I think that's that's the biggest problem is that this idea of him leaving is is almost starts to feel really abstract because if he isn't there, who's doing anything? Who's doing anything at this club? No one's at the moment. I mean, kind of the, the wheeling out to Chips Keswick to even pass the slightest comment about whether or not the manager's position is being considered. Um, there's no one offering any sort of uh, public comment or any sort of public acknowledgement of, of the possibility that Wenger could leave who's got any authority to do anything. So it's like all power rests with one man. Um, and a man who, again, I can't say enough times because I will always adore Arsene Wenger, has done incredible things for the club and has been... Uh, so far and away a net good um, even if you feel frustrated by the way the team is playing right now but nevertheless can't be that forever and I think that is um, maybe even has been the thing that has stopped him from achieving as much success at Arsenal as, as he could have done is that there has never in the last I don't know how many years there's never felt like there's someone else who is also running this ship with him it's just him yeah. doing it on his own and yeah uh, i think that's that's a really scary thing for arsenal how they're going to deal with that when the time comes yeah i mean it's the 2007 when when david yeah. dean left i think so you're, you're talking about 10 years and it took i don't know how how many years to appoint ivan gazidis that was mm-hmm. at least two or three years i think before before he came in um you know so that i think you're right there to a large extent i mean i it's difficult to think that they, they like Gazidis and Kroenke, for example, aren't aware of what's going on and the pressure that he's under uh, uh, and everything else. Mm. How do you view their silence? It, it feels like they're they're happy just to sit in the background and not necessarily mm. offer any like genuine, tangible support because everybody, as you said, looked at that Sir Chips Keswick thing and went, oh, for goodness sake. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. I know I know he's the chairman and that's how things are normally done at a football club. But these aren't really normal circumstances at, at Arsenal, even for the club to make a statement like that shows you that there's there's some stuff going on that has not gone on for mm-hmm. over 20 years. Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, I, I guess we all knew even before. A lot of people in England knew about Stan Kroenke. One of the first things they knew about him was Silent Stan. You know, that was, yeah. those were the, the words associated with him. He's going to be in the background. He's going to stay out of the way. And that's what he does. It's not uh, It's not new. You know, the, the area in which, I guess, even in his American sports dealings, the area in which we've actually seen him taking a sort of even slightly more prominent position was just in, in getting uh, the Rams, the NFL team, moved to Los Angeles. And that's very much a sort of... Uh, very much a, a business decision. It's very much a decision which is hedged around not the sporting side of things, but the financial side of things. Um, so we can't be surprised that he's taking more of a backseat. I think it's been disappointing that we haven't seen more of even Gazidis, and I think that's something that is uh, a frustration for a, for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I, you know, I, I don't know what what I want to say that I didn't just say a second ago, but I think mm. that this. Um, this situation is is it feels really untenable at the moment. I think it feels like um, you know you've got uh, a lot of frustration around the club, um, a lot of frustration, and I think uh, having you know already said in the last few minutes, and I'll say again, you know, such a huge admiration and and affection for Arsene Wenger. Nevertheless, completely understanding the frustration because the club is in a really frustrating uh, static mode for some time now, in which it feels rudderless and like it's not going anywhere. And 
it's a situation someone needs to take hold of. And it's like Wenger, with the best will in the world, can't be the one to do it. He can't because he's the one who's being questioned. He's the one who's being, uh, who's being, who's, who's sort of continued role and presence in this project is is at stake. And so for him to be the man still presiding over that decision, it's it's not it's not real. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, there really needs to be uh, a bit more from the top, and I don't think uh, we're getting it. I don't think it's to uh, to anyone's benefit, the club overall, or Arsene Wenger himself. Um, and and no. some people at the end of it will walk away uh, maybe a little less uh, tarnished by it than they might have been, because, you know, it probably takes a bit of guts. If you really back the manager, come out and say it, you know, but then if mm-hmm. things go wrong, you end up with uh, with egg on your face, as has happened before a couple of times with uh, with Hyman Gazeta. So I think he's uh, deliberately quiet for, for that reason. But look, we better leave it there. Paolo, uh, great insight into uh, Allegri. Thank you very much indeed, and we'll catch up again soon. Anytime. Thank you to Paolo. You can find him on Twitter at Paolo underscore Bandini. That is Paolo underscore Bandini. Some interesting stuff about Max Allegri there, right? We're going to be back with more, I don't know of what, but more of something after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, for some of you, that will have been a, just a very quick gap between me saying right after this and me start talking again. And for me start talking again, what the hell is going on with my words today? I already talked about this with Paolo earlier. Anyway, uh, for others, you might have got a commercial in there, an ad, because that is um, how we uh, keep the lights on here. We have an ad-supported podcast. And I just wanted to feed back a little bit on something that I wrote this week. I, I linked to it from Arsblog uh, over on my uh, my personal website, uh, which is andrewmangan.net. And I give you that only for, for information, you know, if you want to go and read that post, if you missed it, not to put it in your mind, uh, you know, if you're the sort of person who uh, needs a, a voiceover for a commercial or a, a corporate video or any kind of voiceover whatsoever that, you know, you, you go, oh, wow, I remember visiting the site of a, a voiceover guy. Who was that? Um, that's not the, the purpose of this whatsoever. I'm just saying that, you know, bear that in mind if you are looking for uh, voiceovers. I, you know, I can do that. That's sort of that's sort of my thing, you know, apart from the writing and, and all that kind of stuff. But look, uh, I stray off the point. Uh, the commercials, the ads that we have on the podcast are what keep the lights on, and uh, we have ads on the site as well. But it did spark an interesting discussion because I was talking about various models and various ways that people can, uh, what's the word, monetize their content, if that doesn't make me sound too much like uh, a wanker. 
uh, which it does slightly, but that's, you know, that's what it is. You know, you make content and we've got ads and the ads make some money and we've got the podcast and the uh, the ads on the podcast make some money. But the uh, the discussion was very interesting because I think eventually, um, not just Arsblog I'm talking about here, but uh, other small publishers, websites and podcasts uh, that you love uh, and and consume every day are going to have to look at different ways of, of raising revenue because... Um, Advertising is, A, a bit of a pain. Nobody really likes it, do they? Nobody likes ads in general. You know, you have a TV now. Everyone skips past ads. Um, you know, if you can fast forward on your Skybox or your TiVo or whatever it is. So, uh, you know, it, it's something that people just don't want and aren't aren't um, aren't fond of in any way. And I do appreciate everybody uh, out there who, who puts Arsblog on their whitelist. Uh, you know, if you do have ad blocking software, you can you can whitelist certain websites so ads display on that website alone. And I know a lot of people do that for Arsblog, and I'm very grateful. But other ways that you can do it, where you have a donation model, you have a subscription model, you have paywalls, and all these kind of things that uh, I think are going to be part of the future and and how we consume media and how we consume the things that we like to read and listen to. And uh, I gave the example in the piece about the Second Captains podcast. So you've heard Ken Early uh, on this podcast a, a few times, and they had a big deal with the Irish Times. Their contract came to an end. And rather than go out and look for more sponsors and look for more advertising, they've done it via uh, Patreon, which is, uh, you know, you, you sign up a subscription every month and you get access to all the content uh, once you do that. Some of it is free. Uh, I think their Monday podcasts are free, but the rest of the week you've got to be a subscriber to do that. And it's been a, it's been a great success for them. And it's, uh, it's very heartening to see. Um, and, you know, talking to people, uh, you know, on the, on the blog post that I made, uh, people have chipped in with their comments and you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing to try and implement. You know, I don't know that uh, if you're giving something away for free all the time, you can then really take it back and say, no, you, you can't have that. Or you can't have it until, uh, you know, some people were saying, if you're a subscriber, you get the blog first thing in the morning. If you're not a subscriber, you don't get it till midday. I think that would just annoy people more than uh, it, it would uh, attract people to uh, paying a subscription or a donation. So I really think that in the future, it's something we're going to have to consider one of the things, I guess, is an ad-free app. You know, we've got Android apps and we've got a, a, an iPhone app. So an annual subscription for the for the app to make it ad-free would be one way that uh, we could start to do things like this. But uh, it's, it's a whole new world, a whole new interesting world out there. And uh, I just want to say thank you to uh, all the people who have provided feedback and comments on that post. It's uh, It's been very interesting and, uh, you know, it gives us something to talk about in the future. For now, though, you don't have to worry. Everything is still 100% free, 100% free to you all the time. So that's the blog, the news, the podcast, everything else, all the columns, etc. on the site will remain free. But do remember, and I don't just talk about Arsblog here, that a lot of the websites that you use need advertising revenue. Some of them will uh, try and get it from you in more unscrupulous ways, you know, with lots of annoying ads like pop-unders and, like, you know, if you know if you try and stream a game uh, on some of those websites, it takes you about eight clicks of an ad uh, to get the stream up, and that's quite deliberate. They're, you know, because they know you want what's there. They know you want the stream more than anything so they can fuck you around, but, you know, if you came to Arsblog in the morning and you had to click through eight ads and they kept popping up you know you wouldn't come back so uh, lots of publishers are just reliant on regular advertising um to uh, to keep the lights on to to keep 
being able to provide the content uh, that you want to listen to or you want to read. So, uh, you know, it is it is worth remembering, uh, even if ads on, on other websites are, are particularly uh, frustrating at times. Uh, remember the whitelist thing, and I'm sure your, your favorite website or podcast uh, would appreciate the support that you can give them. So there you go. Anyway, uh, we have got a game tomorrow against West Brom, an early kickoff away from home, 12.30 or 12.45, I think, uh, at the Hawthorne. Um, we lost there last year, if I remember correctly. I think we uh, we went ahead and then conceded a couple of goals, and uh, yeah, it was not a it was not a good day, and it was a difficult game earlier in the season, wasn't it? At the Emirates back, it was December, I think. Olivier Giroud scoring in the eighty uh, sixth minute. That's what it took. It took that long to break them down. And uh, I do wonder what sort of a team we're going to see tomorrow because West Brom are big, they're physical, they're good from set pieces, they're dangerous from set pieces. So I wonder if on the one hand we might prefer Olivier Giroud to be an impact player, somebody who could come on from the bench with about 20 minutes to go, which is something that he's very good at, whether that might have to be balanced with the need to add some height and some physicality and defensive uh, ability from set pieces and corners because Giroud does add some height uh, in the box for that. Um, the rest of the team news is that uh, I think the, the guys who are sick, Alex Iwobi, Danny Welbeck, they're fit again. Uh, who else is uh, out? Kieran Gibbs might be out, I think. Uh, Oxlade-Chamberlain is going to have a, a little bit of a, a fitness test on the hamstring injury that he picked up against Lincoln, but we've got Mesut Ozil back. Mohamed Elneny is back in the side. So we, we've got plenty to choose from. It's down to the manager to get it to work now. And uh, I really, I really think that uh, we've got to try and make the midfield work in a very serious way between now and the end of the season because it hasn't really worked um, since Cazorla got injured. We've struggled to find any real fluency in our game, uh, in our football, because we've been chopping and changing in, in midfield so often and because basically a lot of the pairings that we've used in there just don't work. They don't complement each other uh, at all. Um, I know Xhaka and Ramsey isn't one that will convince an awful lot of people uh, at this moment in time, but I think it's probably the best one that we've got. So I'd like to see that tomorrow uh, against West Brom. Uh, Up front, you know, there are forward options as well back. There's uh, Theo Walcott obviously scored uh, against Lincoln. There's uh, Lucas Perez. That's the bit where you're supposed to insert a laugh there as if Lucas Perez is going to be given a game. Links with him and West Ham this summer wouldn't be a surprise, would it, if he was uh, if he was to leave given the, the lack of playing time, the lack of faith that Arsene Wenger seems to have in him. But look, we've got options and it is a game that we really, really have to win, you know, because we've got to we've got to keep pace with the top four, remember? We've got an interlull then, you see. We've got two weeks without any football. We need to go into this interlull with three points under our belt. We've got games in hand. Um, we, we just can't allow the gap to become any bigger than it is. And when you see big points gaps at this point of the season, it adds to the pressure that we're under already because you don't, you know, you don't have uh, too many games to sort that out. So I'm hopeful that uh, the win against Lincoln will perhaps restore a little bit of confidence and belief. A little bit, you know, you can't take too much. Um, from a win against a, a non-league side, regardless of how plucky and how well they tried, um, but we've got to we've got to get ourselves going. 
uh, between now and the end of the season. There's still some big games, so hopefully we can uh, we can do that against West Brom tomorrow, Saturday, and uh, take the three points there. So look, James and I will be here on Monday. We will discuss everything that happens against West Brom and all the rest, and we'll look forward to the rest of the interlull in the Arscast Extra. Until then, have yourselves a great weekend. Fingers crossed, up the Arse. Uh, catch you on the next one. Cheers. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 